My son Pierce, he's six and he takes karate. And these days everything is moved online. And so he had his online karate class the other day. And then I get home and I'm sitting on the couch and he learns some moves. And he said, Dad, I got to show you my new karate move. I learned how to escape in case someone grabs me. So I said, all right, all right, what do you want me to do? And he says, grab my arm as tight as you can. So I grab his arm, and he does this little move, and I let go. And he says, no, Dad, grab my arm as tight as you can. And so I grab on a little tighter this time, and he does this move, and I make sure that I'm hanging on so I don't let go. He does the move again. Again, I keep grabbing on. I'm not letting go. And he does the move a third time, and still I'm grabbing on, not letting go. And then I say to Pierce, I said, hey, I don't think your move is going to work on me. I think daddy's just a little too strong for this. You need some more karate moves. And he looks back at me and he says, oh, dad, it'll work. And so with a little more gusto the fourth time, he does his move and I still grab on. I'm not letting go. And then he punches me right in the nose. At that point, my eyes are watering. I'm checking to make sure my glasses are not broken And I let go. His karate move, it worked. You know, there are some issues in life that just punch all of us, aren't there? And that's why we're kind of going through this series, No Fear, because God invites us to trust him during these turbulent times. So it's the most common command given in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Don't fear, because God knows that fear always produces poor decisions. It causes us to think irrationally. It causes us to act impulsively and overreact and act erratically. We don't make good decisions when we're afraid. And so that's why we're kind of launching into this series. And if you have any fears that you want us to address and you want us to look at, and how do I think through this biblically, go ahead and chime in right now on the Facebook post here. Let us know what fears would you like to see us address. Well, this morning, we're looking at a fear that kind of hits all of us in one way or another. It doesn't matter how strong we are, how healthy we are. Sooner or later, a disease hits, a sickness hits because viruses are real, cancers are real, things happen, and they punch all of us in one way or another. And we can look at this and it's easy to get afraid because we don't want to catch this virus. We want to live life with a sense of vitality and health and energy and optimism. We we don't want a disease that's going to cause us to lose our mental faculties. We want to be able to take care of ourselves and we don't want to be dependent on somebody else. And so when we live in a world full of disease and sickness and cancer and viruses and pandemics, Well, it can cause some fear. Matthew, he's going to help us think rightly about this and how we ought to look at disease and sickness. And it's an invitation to trust a God who's over it all. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 this morning. We'll read the passage and then I'll kind of step back and give us kind of a bird's eye view, an overview of the argument in Matthew's gospel. And then slowly we'll just kind of dig in a little deeper into what Matthew says to us this morning. So let's check it out. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Matthew writes this. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses, and he bore our diseases. 
Now, I want you to understand the argument in Matthew's gospel. Matthew, he's, he's arguing, he's presenting Jesus to a Jewish audience. And so he begins his gospel by presenting the person of Jesus, the person of this Davidic king. And this is who Jesus is. This is his lineage. This is where he's come from. And then he begins to transition to the platform that Jesus had, his teaching, how he speaks with one who has authority. He speaks like a king. And now in this section here in chapter eight, it, it marks a pivot in his gospel, a turn, because now he's he's arguing for Jesus's power as a king. And he has this authority and it does not come simply from his position, but it comes from his person. This is who he is. He has this kingly power to heal, to, to do these miracles. And in Matthew 8 and 9, uh, he has this unique way of presenting this power to this Jewish audience. He has three miracle sections. And so in this section here that we're kind of diving into, it's the third of three miracles. And there's these three miracles, and then there's a, a call to discipleship. Then there will be three more miracles, and then another call to discipleship. And then there will be three more miracles, only there will be kind of a fourth miracle tucked into one of them. And then another call to discipleship that this king and his power and the person that he is, he is worthy to be followed. He is worthy to be trusted. He's a good king. This is the argument of Matthew. The first three miracles that we're looking at this morning, and really the last one here with Peter's mother-in-law, it all deals with sickness and, and Jesus' power in people's lives. The second set of three miracles, it, it deals with the power over nature. And then the last of the three miracles that really has that kind of bonus, the fourth miracle, it deals with problems in Israel. And so how Jesus, this king, he has power and authority over every realm of life. And it's an invitation for us to, that we can trust this good king in turbulent times. And so here in Matthew 8, he begins this miracle section. You may remember when Jesus heals a leper. And lepers in those days, they are outside the camp. They had this bodily uncleanliness that they are not allowed to be in with everybody else because it's this highly infectious disease for which there was no cure. And if they're around other people, they're going to infect everybody. So they have to be quarantined off for a little bit. And here comes Jesus and he comes in and he reaches out and he touches the man with leprosy. And anybody watching that, anybody hearing this story, all the Jews, they're cringing and they're saying, no, Jesus, what are you doing? You cannot touch him. You will become unclean. You will get leprosy. You could transmit this to somebody else. What are you doing, Jesus? Don't touch him. Don't touch him. And Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches the man and Jesus does not become unclean, the man becomes clean. And then Jesus gives the instruction, hey, you have to go and you have to report this to the priest because people knew only God could clean leprosy. And so a priest had to sign off that, yes, this was a miracle of God. He is now safe to re-enter society. And so that's the first miracle. The second miracle that Jesus performs is for the servant of the centurion. You remember this? There's the Gentile officer in the Roman army, and he, he recognizes Jesus' position and his power and who he is. And he says, hey, I myself am a man under authority and in authority. And Jesus, if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. You don't have to come all the way here. 
he rightly understands, this Gentile Roman officer rightly recognizes the position of Jesus as God the Son. And he says, just say the word. Jesus is amazed and he says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Not even the Jews, the Israelites have faith like you, Gentile man. And then Jesus makes this interesting statement. He says, I tell you what, there's going to be Gentiles who will be taking seats around the table with the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these religious Jews who you would expect to be sitting around the table, these natural sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, well, I'm going to cast them out into other darkness because all they have is this form of religion, but they don't have a relationship. So they're going to be cast out into this darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, this place of bitter sorrow and anger. Hell is not a place of repentance. It is a place of anger and sorrow and torment and pain. And he says that's where they will be. And then we get this miracle. And this is the one that we want to kind of focus in on and zero in on this morning. And it's the healing of, of uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And in this miracle, it's important to, to see the broader context. Because in this section, Jesus first heals a Jew. Then he heals a Gentile. And now he returns and heals a Jew. It's, it's, it's kind of a picture of this broader way in which God deals with humanity. God first focuses on the Jews. He first primarily focuses on the Jews by offering the kingdom to the Jews. The Jews reject it. So then the offer is made to the Gentiles. And then there will be a time in the future where God again turns his attention to the Jews. We kind of see that just a, a, a micro kind of picture of that here in this passage. The first miracle in this section, uh, Jesus performs on a man who has this bodily uncleanliness. And so he is excluded from the camp. He can't be in broader society because of this disease, this leprosy that he has. The second miracle is done for a man who is excluded based on his ethnicity. And so he is outside the camp because of his ethnicity. And now this third one is a woman who is excluded from all everything in society uh, that a man would be able to take place in because of her gender. And so Matthew is making this argument that all people, it doesn't matter what you've got in your past. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your gender. All people are welcome into God's kingdom. All people are called to be disciples. All people can serve in this kingdom because this is a good king and he's the king over all. And so we have this kind of going on in the background. And you need to know this, this miracle, it's also recorded in the Gospels of Mark and Luke. Mark, he makes us privy to this knowledge that this miracle is taking place on the Sabbath. And now the Sabbath is a day of rest. And so you should understand that many of Jesus's miracles took place on the Sabbath. And this just would have infuriated the Jews because the Sabbath was for rest. And they're seeing Jesus go out there and do all these miracles on the Sabbath. And they're saying, you are violating God's law. I mean, what kind of prophet, what kind of man are you that you would violate God's law in such a flagrant way. This is bad. I mean, the, the Jews, they had all these regulations where they've added on to what it looks like to rest on the Sabbath. And you can't go to a doctor on the Sabbath. You can't pick up items that 
you're over a certain weight on the Sabbath. You can't prepare food on the Sabbath. You can't do much of anything on the Sabbath. And here's Jesus doing all these miracles. And yet again here, healing the sick on the Sabbath. And it all goes to prove that Jesus is king of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He, he, he is above it all, and he's worthy to be followed. And so he arrives at the home of Peter and Andrew, the, and the mother of uh, Peter's wife. She's, she's very ill. And in those days, in that culture, it was quite common for extended family members to all live in the same housing unit. So it, it, it was not anything out of the ordinary that Andrew and his family might live there, that Peter's mother-in-law might live there. This was normal. This was cultural. This was how things were. So here's Peter's mother-in-law, and she's sick. Luke, the physician, Dr. Luke, he, he makes us privy to the knowledge that this is a high-grade fever. And he uses a Greek tense that lets us know that it is a continuous fever. This is a chronic problem that maybe she's dealt with for a little bit of time now. She is seriously ill. She is very sick. She's the type of person that in those days you have some social distance with. Nobody's getting too close to her because they know you get too close you might get that fever. You might contract that illness. So we're, we're staying away. If you got to bring something to her, you wear gloves, you wear a mask, you wash your hands afterwards. Better yet, you just jump in and take a shower all together. This is a woman who is not well. You want to keep your distance from someone like this so that you don't continue to spread the illness. Well, Jesus walks in. And it's interesting. Mark tells us that Jesus grabs this woman's hand. Luke tells us, Dr. Luke tells us that Jesus bent over the woman. And Matthew tells us that he touched her. And there would have been this sense as the Jews are hearing this story, as Matthew presents it, that they would have been saying, what, what are you doing, Jesus? It's, it's not a good idea to walk into that room, Jesus. Don't, don't go in that room. You can do it the way you did with the centurion's servant. You know, just say the word, Jesus. Don't, don't actually go there. What, you're touching her, Jesus? Don't do, Jesus, what are you thinking? This isn't safe, Jesus. You could get sick, Jesus. What, what, what are you doing, Jesus? You can understand the, the, the fear that is taking place as people are hearing this story because they know this is not the way you do things. That this is just not right. This is dangerous. This is reckless. This is a violation of the Sabbath. This is all these things. Jesus, you're not making sense to us. You're blowing our minds. And just like with the leper, Jesus does not become unclean. Jesus does not become sick. Jesus does not need to wash his hands. He doesn't need a shower. Peter's mother-in-law is immediately healed. She's immediately strengthened. I mean, this healing is immediate. She doesn't have to just kind of rest in bed for a few more days, eat some good food, and then kind of gradually regain her strength so that she can go about living her life. No, she is immediately infused with this strength and this vitality of life so that she can get up and just do what she does. And as she's healed... This lady, she recognizes that Jesus is, in fact, Lord of the Sabbath. So, yes, it's the Sabbath day, 
But that's not going to stop her from serving Jesus. Did you notice that in Matthew's gospel? It says she got up and began to serve him. She began to serve Jesus. She's waiting on him. She's preparing food for him. She's taking the posture of a disciple saying, I will serve you. I will follow you. What do you have for me, Jesus? I will do it. The Sabbath, it, it didn't prevent her from doing that. Anybody else is looking at this and saying, what, what has happened here? I mean, now this woman is violating the Sabbath law, and and Jesus, he's accepting it? Well, what kind of king is this who would accept a woman who's going to serve him on the Sabbath, who's going to make meals on the Sabbath, who's going to work on the Sabbath? This is just not right. You, You can just imagine these people scratching their heads, trying to figure out, who is this Jesus anyway? This man with this kind of power and this kind of platform, what kind of person is this? Because he's violating all of their traditions, all of their religiosity, and it just isn't making sense. The disciples, they must have been celebrating because word seems to spread rather quickly that Jesus is doing these miracles. And it says that that night when evening came, many brought their sick to Jesus. Many brought those who were demon-possessed to Jesus, and Jesus healed them. Now, Remember, they bring these people to Jesus at night. Why? Well, because it's the Sabbath and you can't do healings like that. You can't bring people somewhere during the day. So they wait until sunset because then at that moment, now they're free. They're not under the constraints of the Sabbath law anymore. Now they're free to get back to work. Now they can carry people. Now they can go places and travel. And so at the first chance they get, when they think, hey, it's okay by the law, this is now permissible, they're taking their people and they're going to Jesus. And Jesus heals them. He heals all of them. It must have been this beautiful, amazing scene. All these people restored to vitality and normalcy and health and strength. And Matthew says that Jesus did that, that all of this happened to fulfill what was prophesied by Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, that this is the Messiah, that this King Jesus, he will be the one who takes on our illnesses and who will bear our diseases. Now, this statement right here helps us understand a fear of disease and why all these miracles kind of happened. See, you need to understand that we have about 35 miracle passages in the scripture. There's about 35 occasions where Jesus is doing miracles. And in all of those miracle passages, you need to understand that the miracle is not the end of itself. The question is always, what is this miracle teaching us? What is this miracle producing for us. It's always what is taught by the miracle, what comes out of the miracle. We tend to think that the miracle is the end, that, hey, Peter's mother-in-law was healed. Yes, that's it. That's what we were after. This is what we wanted. But that's not where scripture kind of wants to drive our attention. Scripture wants to drive our attention to the purpose, to the reason behind it. Why did these miracles take place? What was Jesus trying to accomplish? What was he wanting to teach us? What is he communicating to us so that something different will be produced within us? And so we have so much fear concerning disease 
And then we read these miracle passages and oftentimes we learn the wrong lessons because we don't see where it's leading. We see the miracle as the end in and of itself. And so we read a passage like this and we think, if only I can just get my loved one to Jesus or I'm sick, if only I can just get to Jesus and he can see me and he, and he can really understand what I'm going through. And if he recognizes that I'm here sick or my loved one is here sick, he will reach out in compassion just like he did with all those people there in Matthew's gospel. And he will reach out and he will touch and he will heal. And so we have this counsel that takes place all too frequently where someone will say, I, I received this word from the Lord and you're going to be healed. Or I, I believe that God will, that God has spoken to me and that he will now heal me. That this is God's will for my life, that I will be restored and made full and I will be healed. And so we read that. And then what happens when the healing doesn't come, when, when the issue is chronic and the illness persists and things don't seem to be getting any better? In fact, things seem to be getting worse. Well, now there's a crisis of the faith because we thought Jesus would heal me. We thought we had this word from Jesus and he said, yes, you'll be healed. Someone has told us that, hey, God told me everything's gonna be okay. This, this illness, this sickness, this cancer, this virus, it's gonna go away, you're gonna be okay. And so now there's this crisis of the faith because it didn't happen. And so then instead of looking to God, we begin to look more into ourselves. We say, well, it must be because I didn't believe enough. I didn't have enough faith. I, it, the problem must be with me or, or must be with my loved one who didn't receive this healing. If only they had more faith, if only they believed more. And this poor theology, this poor understanding of how God uses disease and sickness and illness, it leads us to this self-doubt and this worry and this crisis of the faith because we don't think rightly. And then in the moment, this fear, it produces more poor decisions because we aren't thinking rightly and it comes all from this misunderstanding of miracles and what God is doing through the miracles in the scriptures and so we think of miracles as an end and of themselves that hey once the person is healed that's it that's the climactic moment that's what the miracle was intended to show us but that's not what's happening in, in, in the scriptures. But when we do that, we, we want to look for the, the technique that was used. And we say, ah, oh, the, the centurion, this, this Gentile man of great faith, he, he recognized that, that Jesus had this authority. And, oh, Jesus, if you just say the word. And so we use that and we say, okay, Jesus, you just say the word. You, you don't need to reach out and touch me. You don't need to touch my loved one. You just say the word, Jesus. I believe you can do it, Jesus. Just say the word, Jesus. Jesus, why are you being quiet? Jesus, wh wh why are you staying silent? Why aren't you saying the word, Jesus? Why aren't you providing this healing? You, you see how it works? You see how this fear can creep in? I believe like the centurion, wh why isn't my faith healing me? Wh why, why isn't this happening? Because that's not how God works. There's no magic formula. There's no preconceived package. There's no set boundaries that if you do X, Y, and Z, that then God is obligated to do this. It just doesn't work like that. That's not the point. That's not where the miracles are driving us in Scripture. That's not what God is wanting to produce out of this. You remember the, the blind man who was healed? 
how the, the religious leaders, they begin to interrogate him after his healing. And they say, okay, tell us who is Jesus and asking these theological questions. And the blind man says, I don't know about all that. But the one thing I know is this, I was blind and now I can see. And you say, well, maybe it was his parents. Maybe his parents had this great faith and that's why he was healed. No, no, no. His, his parents actually disowned him because he was healed by Jesus on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders went to the man's parents and said, you can choose. You can have your son and you can have Jesus. Or you can have your friends and you can have temple worship and you can continue to join with us and be a part of the greater society. And they said, well, we'll choose that. We're not, we're not leaving the temple. We're not leaving our religiosity. We're not leaving our traditions and so they, they, they instead leave their son and they leave Jesus. No, it's not because his parents had great faith. And maybe you remember the other story, the, the, the man with the demon-possessed son. And he's done so much for his boy. He's tried whatever he could. He's taken him to the disciples. And the disciples have tried to cast out these evil spirits, but it's just not working. The, the boy's just not getting better. And so then they take him and his son to Jesus And Jesus looks at the man and says, do you believe? And the man says, oh, I believe, but help my unbelief. Is it a perfect belief? No. Is it a perfect faith? No. He's been through so much. He's tried so much. Does he believe Jesus can do it? Yeah, part of him does. But part of him can't get there. Part of him just just can't hope again because he's tried and tried and tried and it just hasn't happened. But Jesus does the healing. It's not because the man had perfect faith. It's not because our faith is perfect. It's never going to be perfect, this side of heaven. See, it's, it's not the perfection of our faith. It's the perfection of the object of our faith. It's the perfection of Jesus. It, it's, it's, it's who our faith is in. This mighty King Jesus who has this authority. Is it perfect? No, not yet. We try to grow. We try to get better. But the question comes, just what are these miracles then supposed to teach us? What what then are we supposed to take away from this? Well, Matthew, he quotes Isaiah, the prophet, and he says that Jesus bore our illnesses and that he took up our diseases. And you remember what the people would have been saying, right? When the leper is healed and when Peter's mother-in-law is healed, they're saying, no, Jesus, don't touch them. Don't reach out your hand, Jesus. Don't get close to them, Jesus. You're going to become unclean, Jesus. This isn't safe, Jesus. Don't do it. And Jesus reaches out his hand and he takes on the illness. He, he reaches his hand into the leprosy, into the fever, and he does not become unclean. Instead, they become clean. He can bear our illnesses. He can bear our sicknesses. And then the, the Gentile servant from afar, Jesus can just give the word. And he has this authority that he can even heal from a distance, that he doesn't have to be right there. He can take it all on from afar. And so we see this, that he really can bear our diseases. He really does take up our infirmities. He has this authority that he can heal. Well, this gets to the broader question then. Well, how can this King Jesus come to planet Earth and be around sinful people and not become sinful? How does that happen? How does he not become like us? How does he not become deluded in his thinking, in his actions? How does he remain perfect? 
And then comes the even bigger question, and this is the question that Isaiah is after in Isaiah 53. What does this atonement, how is it really accomplished? How is this Messiah going to do this? See, it gets to this question. How can Jesus bear our sin? How can he become sin for us and yet still remain perfect? How does that sin not infect him? How how does he have the power to become sin and yet at the same time, die for sin and defeat sin because he did not become infected by sin. How does that happen? Oh, because he can carry our diseases. He can take up our infirmities. He is able to touch the deepest and the darkest, the most painful, the most ugly. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, how you've been excluded. He can touch it all and he can heal it. He can bring fullness. He can bring vitality. He can bring health. He can bring strength and it's perfect. See, The miracles aren't an end in and of themselves. That's not what the miracles are about. It's always about what they teach us. And you know, Peter's mother-in-law, do you remember what the miracle taught her? It It taught her that this King Jesus is worthy to be followed. That, that you want to become a disciple of this king. You want to do what he's equipping you to do. And so what does she do on the Sabbath? It doesn't matter the customs. It doesn't matter the tradition. It doesn't matter all this religiosity. She gets up and she works and she serves him and she takes the posture of a disciple. And she says, teach me so that I can follow you. This is what she does. This is what the miracle does. That anybody who has been touched by the gracious hand of our Lord Jesus, Jesus, that we respond with this attitude of humble service, of saying, now, what have you called me to do, Jesus? You've reached into my life and you've saved me and I believe that. So what do you want from me out of this? I will do anything. I'll follow you anywhere. What are you calling me to do? See, if you've been touched by God, if you've been healed from your sin, then you need to understand this. That is not the end of the story. You've been saved for a purpose. God says that you've been saved for good works that he has prepared in advance for you to walk in them. He's designed these good works specifically for you. He had you in mind at your salvation for what he wanted to accomplish in and through you. There's people in this life that he's asking you to walk alongside, to be there, to model, to equip, to teach, to share that this is what the Jesus life looks like. This is how you go and you make disciples and then you release them and you celebrate with them as you see God now using them. So you understand that even your salvation, this great miracle of salvation, that's not the end of the story, that there is something more, that now you've been adopted as sons and daughters of God the Father with your elder brother Jesus Christ as the example of this is how you live as representatives of God on this earth here now. So that we've been saved for a purpose The salvation miracle is not the end of the story. And so now we look at diseases and illnesses and cancers and sicknesses, and we think, how do I think rightly about this? Well, Matthew helps us. The Apostle Paul helps us too. He says, right now, we're groaning inwardly with groans that words can't even express, and that one day the redemption of our bodies will take place. See, we're waiting that day, Paul says. But that day's not happened yet. If, if we're looking for all the answers here and now, if we're looking for this full health 
here and now, well, we're going to miss it. See, the prophet Isaiah, he's asking this question, and in his argument of Isaiah 53, he's getting to these questions. Does the sacrifice and the atonement of Jesus bring healing? And the answer is yes. Is is God's will for us to be fully healthy, fully strong, fully vital? And the answer is yes. Does this Messiah, does he have the ultimate vaccine to make all of that happen? And the answer is unequivocally yes. However, we won't realize all of that in this life because we're living life in a world corrupted by sin. And the promise of God is that one day I'm going to make it all right. That I can reach into this world of sickness and disease and illness and cancer and virus and I can reach into all of that and I can reach into a world of sin and ugliness and distrust and and all of that and I can bear it all I can take it all and I can make it good and that's our hope that one day when we see him face to face we will be like him that's the hope of the believer and so we understand that right now in this life yeah, we're all going to be die. We're all going to die with work that's left undone. That there will be emails in our inbox that go unanswered. That our faith will not be perfect. That there is this greater sanctification, this glorification that will take place when we see Him, because then we will be like Him. But we understand this. We have this great hope that our King Jesus took Satan's best punch. And that he escaped the hold of death for all of us. And so now what do we learn from that? We learn that he can take it all, that we can trust him, and that right now our posture, our attitude is let's humbly serve him with everything we've got. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have adopted us to be your sons and daughters. And God, it is our desire to serve you well, that this miracle of salvation is not the end of the story. So help us to trust, help us to serve, help us to be the disciple makers you've called us to be. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, who bore it all for us. Amen.